This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The uber genre of tabletop. A story for our mythos god. Fantasy subgenres. And world civilization research. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. And let's see, to go with our Doritos, how about Strawberry Jam? And our miniatures are a fine selection of old-fashioned Tommy gun-carrying dudes. And, yeah, also uh, they've been touched by the people who've been eating the jam. So right, a yeah. Sticky. And, and plastic dinosaurs from out back. And Peter Frampton, we're playing some of Side 4 that you don't hear an awful lot, because today the Gaming Hut addresses the question of, What just happened? How did we get here? What was that all about? Questions that are always asked around the gaming table after a certain amount of time. Uh, This is in fancy terms, Robin, and these are the terms you've chosen, which is why I'm calling them fancy. This is called (laughs) the bend toward the picaresque. Also, the increasing effort you have to put in to maintain continuity, another strong one. That, I think, is is true to all serial fictions, including those created through role-playing. Robin, do you have thoughts on the bend toward the picaresque? And should we, at the outset, meaningfully separate it from just screwing up or goofing around? Is there, uh, even if everyone is good and and plays proper-like, do things somehow lose a wheel? Well, let's start by explaining what I mean by bending toward the picaresque. That's an excellent idea. Right. And so there is a genre that underlies almost all tabletop. And when it doesn't, 
It's generally either a strange miracle that has happened briefly at your table, or the game designer has built in all sorts of mechanisms to control what you can and can't do so that you don't bend toward the picaresque. But the default sort of trad game experience, whatever genre it is, whether it's fantasy or cyberpunk, uh, eventually it's going to turn a little goofy. And so the, the picaresque genre is not... Uh, there are, you know, some big titans of the world literature canon that are picaresque. Don Quixote, of course, being the most famous example. Uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn as well. In the world of fantasy canon, Jack Vance, of course, is the biggest exponent of that. But these are the adventures of uh, sort of characters who ramble around, sort of do odd, unexpected things, meet weird people, and uh, more to the point are not uh, characters that we conventionally identify with, but that we follow uh, their mistakes and misadventures and expect them to receive a comeuppance of some kind. And so the irresponsibility of the protagonist and the somewhat episodic nature of picaresque are what happens at the game table when, as you suggest, Ken, someone decides to just sort of mess around or they just do something that seems at the moment to make sense to them but from an objective observer, if they were watching it on TV or reading in a novel, they would go, huh? Yeah. And uh, I've noticed, uh, listening to actual play, that even, you know, really great shows where all the players are really acting their characters and there's uh, all this attention to atmosphere, uh, they're still creeping through, sometimes through the margins. You will suddenly have a moment where one of the players does a very player-like thing that you would see in almost no other genre except the picaresque. Where it's like, really? You thought that was a solution to the problem? That's deeply peculiar. <laughs> so anyone who's DM'd for a couple of sessions knows that part of what you're doing is sort of trying to wrangle the protagonist into acting in a more protagonisty fashion and a, uh, a sort of a humor and a kookiness that stems from the uh, strange ideas that the players have as to how to accomplish things will then flow from that. And that's a big part of your challenge if you're trying to emulate anything. And so the question I think we're looking at, Ken, unless you dispute my premise, is <laughs> how much to lean into this and how much to embrace it as part of the inherent nature of the experience. So what's fun about doing this is that you can do something that your equivalent character in fiction wouldn't do. Yeah, that it's sort of in a way, despite the protest of the player caught doing it, it's the opposite of playing your character because you're kind of not playing them from the stance of this is a character in a narrative. We are, you know, moving through this story together. Maybe you're playing them on the basis that you're so fully internalized that your character has no outside knowledge of what's expected and is therefore just responding to randomly firing neurons in their brain. But often I feel the, the core of it is that the freedom, the art form gives you, you respond to that in at the table. And it's the only sort of place where you can say, uh, we're, we're going to repaint the haunted house and see what that does or something as opposed to a more standardized set of inputs that you get, you know, even in the wildest, most, you know, surrealistic of film, there still is generally some sort of action the character takes often to stand there bemusedly and do nothing that uh, your character in role playing won't do because your character is engaging with it. And that I feel like is sort of that it's not so much that 
everyone who ever picks up the dice is suddenly cursed by the spirit of Puck, I feel like the art form itself encourages this kind of play in the same way that jazz encourages you to go off note and do other stuff while you're playing the song in a way that, you know, a more conventional sonata, for example, won't encourage you to do. And we'll say, stop doing that. And that degree of, of draw from the art is part of what does it. Now, that said, it absolutely happens. It's absolutely a thing that the GM needs to roll with or respond to in some way, either by cracking down if uh, the picaresque play is actually damaging fun at the table or mortally wounding tone, for example. But I think it's better to be able to riff with it and use that as, even in a horror game, use that as the sort of uh, the, the brief respite or the comic relief or the like gallows humor that then turns back into, you know, whatever awful thing is happening. And it's that sort of skill at riffing and rolling that I think takes someone who is a good DM and moves them into great DM. I, I feel like most people given goodwill and non 14 year old boy players can move people through a dungeon and, and, and do those things. It's not a super hard task, but once it gets into riffing, once you get into a campaign where you need to be building tones and doing callbacks and stuff like that, the better you are at that. I think the better the GM you are. Right. So the, the first thing that happened when a player decides to do something that would not occur in a non picaresque genre, let us say, yeah. and I'm just run away. I think part of that is that what, a role-playing environment offers you, or at least a subset of the players, because it's not every player at the table who's making things picaresque. It's no, no, I mean, if they were all doing it at once, the players. It, it would just be the it would just be their weird choice, and the t and that would be the tone. No, it's right. Part of that is the individuality. Yeah. yeah. So let's come back later. Remind me, come back to the issue of what do you do when the other players are annoyed by the picaresque, <laughs> by the picaresque right? But what a role-playing environment offers you is the ability to poke the toaster with a fork. Uh, that in real life, you've been warned not to poke the toaster with a fork. But in the imaginary uh, world of role-playing, you know, what are you going to lose? A D4 hit points. So yeah. why not poke the toaster uh, with a fork? And at this point, Ken, I'm going to ask you for the rest of this discussion to come up with an example of a picaresque thing. Because I don't want to use the example that inspired this segment because I don't want to give give away which podcast I was listening to. Uh, if you have an actual play podcast, it was yours. It was yours. It was your player who your did players this. did it. Okay. Well, I don't want to use the most recent turn for the picaresque that my Delta Green game took because it's it's kind of we're not picaresque shamers here, right? Well, it's it's not strictly you know, strict to sensu PG rated, and so again, it was very picaresque, but it it was a moment. Um, let's let's see if I can think of something. I feel like. One very sort of common moment of the picaresque is the desire to befriend or talk to something that up until that point was not an actor, right? So they may heal the, the wounded Noel who's there to provide clues and, and try and befriend him. They may talk to the monster instead of, you know, banishing it. 
I feel like the opening communication. So let's say healing and befriending the wounded knoll. Is that picaresque enough or do I need to get well, crazy? So for this example to work, there has to have been ample evidence that you should not befriend the knoll. Befriend the knoll. Like a number of people who were in the rictus of, of knoll rabies littering the, the landscape and angry tribes of knolls who swear death to anyone who speaks the sacred knoll language, that kind of thing. Right, exactly. Yeah, right. And so that makes this a, why are you doing that? Um, and mm-hmm. so, and that is a good example because it's going to change the shape of the narrative when, let us say that this is the uh, the cavalier in the party. He has a sense of personal honor that the uh, player wants to uh, suggest and somehow his personal honor always leads to him doing peculiar things. So he's decided that the uh, wounded knoll is a, a noble of his own species and decides to bring him back to the camp instead of putting him in the uh, oubliette that he was supposed to bring him back into. And then the rest of the players have to do, oh, there's a knoll in the camp. What do we do? We're going to go to this castle. Now we have to bring a knoll along with us. What do we do? So it's it's an action that has changed the, the shape of uh, the narrative. And so the question that you are confronted with is, uh, and I, I think I've accidentally now given the Cavalier a better reason to have done this than your, <laughs> than your player may have had originally, because one of the characteristics of this sort of picaresque move is it's just it's a, you know, poking the toaster. But let's let's stick right. with this yeah. example. So the question that now uh, confronts you as a GM is how much do I want to have this choice affect the rest of the story? Is it now going to be a comical adventure where they have a Noel sidekick? Is the Noel going to do the, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, the obvious thing that you've set up and betray them at the first opportunity. But this player has given you, the GM, a ball that you're unsure uh, what to do with. So what is what is your next step as a GM to decide how picaresque you want to let it get? Uh, generally, I mean, my players are are old hands. So if they do this, I assume they mean it. But in general, I feel like the first thing you do is you introduce an, are you sure you want to do that moment? So even after you've said, are you sure you want to befriend the knoll, knowing that he carries knoll rabies? Are you sure that you want to befriend the knoll, knowing that all knolls will now be angry at you for speaking the sacred knoll language? And they've said, yes, my heart has gone to this this noble knoll. I know he's an aristocrat. I can I can fix him. All right, whatever. So they brought him back to the camp. They have the moment, well, we need to go to the palace. That's the next step. Now we have this possibly rabid, certainly danger-producing knoll to drag along. So you have a moment at the outside of, say, the palace. And so they have to talk to the major domo or the guard captain. And he says, you can't bring a knoll into the palace. He carries knoll rabies. It's, it's horrible. Um, and they're like, no, we love this knoll. He is part of us. You know, whether he goeth, we goeth. And then the guard captain should offer a possible solution to get the players to save face, to let them climb down. And he says, look, all right, I get he's your pet knoll. You seem like important travelers. Here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll stake him out in the, in the royal menagerie. And that way he, he just can't come into the palace is all I'm saying. No, who knows what kind of wacky hijinks might ensue if that happens. And so the players can then at, the, at this point say, we've had our fun with the knoll. This is getting a little inconvenient and dumb. Sure. Stake him in the menagerie. We'll think about what to do with him later. Or this is where they double down and say, the knoll is our blood brother. We must bring him. And then that's when they've made the decision. And then you have to figure out. Well, they're not getting into the palace, so what happens? Right. right? So they, so you're giving them a choice as to you, you do realize that this toaster poking is going to radically reshape the whole narrative. Right. How much do you want to do that? How much do you all want to do that? And then another way that you can 
do that, of course, is to switch your plans so that it doesn't alter the narrative quite so much. So another version of that would be, well, everything you've set up so far is that the Knoll is going to betray them, but it turns out that the Knoll's heart grows three sizes bigger that day, and he does become their fast friend, and there is an advantage so that you retroactively change the unestablished things about your universe in order to make that decision uh, less wacky and to uh, have the world cooperate. Now, you don't always have that option. It's interesting that, of course, we went to an F20 example mm-hmm. where the world is so much more fungible right. than, uh, for example, if you have a an example in a contemporary investigative game in the real world, your options to make something uh, a peculiar choice seem less peculiar sort of narrow down, which is why F20 is so wildly popular mm-hmm. because it yeah. uh, allows the embrace of the picaresque and gives you, the GM, so much more operating room in order to make uh, any wackiness makes sense. Yeah. Another thing in the, it's certainly in the F20 context, but I think this is generic or genericizable is that you can then double down on the players is they, yes, we love the Noel. We want the Noel where he's part of our lives. So now, okay, you, you ask for an Noel so that they bring the Noel, they have the discussion and then, you know, the, the old wizard, the old sage sees this discussion. He says, is it the day of the knoll come so soon? Oh, woe betide me that I saw this day. And everyone's like, what the heck? And it's, you know, then it turns out there was an ancient prophecy that a bunch of goofs bringing a knoll will portend the end of the empire. <laughs> a bunch of goose was in capital letters. Right. Yes. And you know, because, you know, people and knolls don't uh, hang out together. They're not friends. That's insane. That would never happen. And so this is a, you know, Dunsinane, you know, Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane moment. This is the big prophecy. And now, yeah, the game's about the Knoll because you guys have announced we love Knolls more than we love society. Ergo, trouble now rains down on you in the form of this Knoll prophecy and, and yes. all the other stuff that you shall henceforth be known as the Knoll bringers, the Knoll bringers. And this then is another option for the players in theory to say, Oh no, 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 we're not friends with this Knoll. He's dead. Ah, oh, oh, he's succumbed to his rabies too bad. What a noble moment. Could you bury him in the, in the menagerie or the midden? We don't care. We need to clean up and go talk to the King. Just like we were supposed to do all along. Yes. <laughs> oh no. The only thing worse than the Noel bringers were the Noel betrayers. No betrayers. Ah, <laughs> uh, doubly wounded are we. So yeah. And I, I feel like you can do that sort of doubling down depending again on the genre of the game in a, in a modern type game that has magic. Sometimes you can involve whatever the magical or supernatural part of the game is as part of your doubling down. If the player characters, however, have just picaresque in a way that does not break realism in the sense of verisimilitude, but just breaks tone or what direction they were going or what you thought the story was about, then again, you need to say, well, you've had your fun over here running that circus. Do you want to go back to the game or are you now circus running people for a while? And if they say, nope, we want to run this circus. We've taken to the aerialist. She's a good girl. She needs to succeed so she can go on to the Olympics or whatever. I don't know what players think. And so it's like, all right. So then you take all the, you know, supernaturals or villains or whatever was going on in your actual game and come up with a reason that they too believe that this circus is important. And maybe it's just because, well, the players think it's important. It must hold the stone of Golgoroth. And now we must, you know, attack the circus all the time. Right. And so the, the things to determine when 
a, a picaresque move comes before you. Uh, another big picaresque move is to challenge the character who's been set up as the villain that you should be very careful about challenging. That's possibly the most classical one. You may ask yourself, does the player know how much it's going to hurt to stick the fork in the toaster? Mm-hmm. Do the other players want that player, even if they go ahead, to stick the fork in the toaster? And is it credible that your character as previously established would stick the fork in the toaster? So for that one, once you find out, okay, I'm sure you want to do this. The other players want you to do this, but also convince me that you, a, you know, a Navy SEAL would choose to do this thing, which seems to cut across your uh, competence so that you may, uh, you can't even, you know, because as GM, you're not the only one who's has the job of maintaining tonal credibility and verisimilitude, you may then throw that back to the players, I think, for the player fairly and say, uh, hey, can you convince me that you would do this? And that is one way to preserve it. Yeah, and, and obviously, you're going to be more motivated to create those challenges when you don't know how to solve the problem of bringing the knoll to the knoll palace. Right? Mm-hmm. If you can't see any other way out, given everything you've already established how to get out of this thing without it just going completely pear-shaped, you're going to be more motivated against the picaresque move than when you can immediately think, oh, well, we'll just, we'll just make them the null bringers. Right. Several picaresque moves ago in my Delta Green, my Fall of Delta Green game, one of the players did decide to confront Joey Dove's Ayupa, number two man in the Chicago outfit, and try and do magic to impress him. And the player character does not know magic. He has a very little connection to one acloglyph, which he does not know how to use. And he thought, I'll just do magic and it will impress Joey Dovzayupa, who uh, we've established is looking for a secret magical power. Of course, it doesn't work. Joey Doves has basically, you know, uh, he'd already screwed Joey Doves over. This was his attempt to make it better. And of course, so now Joey Doves is like, all right, Frank, kill him. And so it becomes fine. You've made that choice. Now you pay the consequences of that choice. Frank starts shooting him. He dives out a window, falls into the Chicago River and swims away. It's good fun. But if they step to the the thing you should not step to, I believe that it is then incumbent on the GM, once you've given them as many outs as you possibly can, given the, the setting, the structure, your player contract, whatever, it's up. It's incumbent on you then to explain why you shouldn't is actually still operative. And in this case, there was a handy window. I allowed it because I was, you know, not necessarily just about murdering this character in cold blood, but he was definitely now there's a contract out on him. Joey Doves wants him dead and he has to stay hidden and it very much inconveniences everyone. They had to check him into the hospital as a as a victim of the uh, Hong Kong flu very early in 1968, in fact, a historically early. Right. Um, and still that has an effect, even though you were able to work that out, it still has an effect on the rest of the tone of your game because mm-hmm. Delta green putatively, the, the grittiest of Lovecraftian subgenres now has this sort of goofball, loose cannon, typical picaresque character in it. And that of course Every mob movie has the loose cannon character. As, but, as the Joe Pesci. Yeah, yeah or well, more, or the, the, the Robert De Niro in Mean Streets, right? Right, but yeah. The, that character generally winds up buried in the desert, so... Yep, in the cornfield. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, uh, I, I think uh, it would be picaresque of us to continue to uh, stick our forks into the toaster of an overlong segment. 
so it's time for us to quickly exit and see what lies on the other side. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the ring of Dracula either, or 13th age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a hand of glory, or red mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The screaming of the cosmos, the correlation of the contents... These heads in the jar tell us we're once more in the Lovecraftian confines of the Mythos Hut. And uh, this is bringing us back to our ongoing series where we create a new Lovecraftian deity. And now we're going to put her through her paces. So we uh, began, first of all, by identifying the qualities of a Lovecraftian deity. Then we went through the list of the uh, canonical ones to see what might be missing. And then uh, last week... We came up with Kothanurin, the destruction at the heart of creation, the incarnation of the Big Bang, the owl trilobite virus spirochete creature that is essentially the forbidden thought at the heart of the universe, the thought that once you have it, you then encounter uh, your own uh, personal doom, which, of course, is of no interest to her because she is trying to doom everything. At this point, we're going to outline a hypothetical short story that introduces uh, Kothanurin. And as we established last week, Kothanurin has always existed, has always been part of the mythos. But somehow this introductory story will not be by Lovecraft or even by Frank Belknap Long, but rather by us. Uh, We've also established that uh, possibly the Yithians have some sort of uh, relationship to her, uh, possibly as their original god that uh, they rejected, or an alternate thought that we were playing with is just that uh, in their bopping from consciousness to consciousness across the time stream, they encounter thoughts of her, and then thoughts of her are pursuing them uh, throughout non-linear time. That's all sorts of cool conceptualizing, but how do we turn that into a story uh, with characters? So, uh, Ken, what does that put you in mind of, given that we don't want to just 
replicate entirely the structure of Call of Cthulhu or Shadow Over Innsmouth or Whisper in the Darkness? Well, first of all, uh, we should be so lucky as to replicate the structure of Call of Cthulhu. Okay, blatantly it's... rip off. We do not <laughs> right. want to blatantly rip off in something that will be better than the thing that we do. Right. Well, we have a deity, and the deity is a mystery. And so the standard story, the one that you don't want to do, uh, the sort of the Durleth version of this, and, you know, hurtful, but there you are, Augie, try to write, you know, better than 25% good stories, um, is we have a, a character, they're a professor of linguistics, they realize that there is a secret Ur language behind Indo-European and behind Proto-Hamitic and all the languages, and that this language exists as a cyst around concepts and questions and that this language was deliberately forgotten and suppressed. And so you can bring in the fact that there's an earlier version of Sumerian that doesn't have any connection to any known language or Basque or other isolate languages that are very, very old, you know, pick as you will, our linguist professor finds ties between them. And as he uncovers it, he realizes that he has now learned the forbidden language and that strong sapir wharf being what it is, he can now only perceive and express the world through it. And uh, he becomes a danger and a, and a disaster. And fortunately, the house he's in blows up and he dies. And that's sort of the Durleth version. So what I feel like then, uh, our story should either be something around the edges of that or something around the edges of what we were talking about, about the Yithians who are sort of the carriers of Kothanurin throughout time and space. And so what we have is a maybe a, a detective or a a set of of people who are worried about some number of weird seemingly motiveless activities crimes some of them one person has lost their memory etc at the center of it but our characters our protagonist is noticing the strange parallels around all of these crimes and rather than deducing the truth i feel like it's more fun if our protagonist deduces something almost true about what's going on. And then we have a moment where we step back and we reveal that uh, he's just glanced away from Kothanurin and that Kothanurin is still there. He didn't fix anything, but he didn't expose himself. And only you, the reader, are exposed to Kothanurin because only you have all of the information now. Something like that. So what I'm hearing is that there is an apparent serial killer. Mm -hmm. So our, our lead character is uh, beginning to sound like an FBI profiler. Mm -hmm. And there is something quite peculiar about the relationships between the similarity between all of the victims, the victimology, if you will, is off, that there's something peculiar about them, that they're not quite connected in the way that they usually would be. And that in some ways, the MO of the killer seems sort of manufactured. There's sort of an odd sort of copycat element to it, but it's not quite right. And what the detective, uh, the, the profiler discovers over the course of the story is that it's not a serial killer, but it's an assassin posing as a serial killer. And uh, the next layer of that is the assassin is, is in fact controlled by Yithian. And what the Yithian is doing is eliminating a cluster of people who have stumbled onto the forbidden thought. So the first one might be your linguistics professor, who in the Derlethian version would be the protagonist, and in this version is the first of the victims. And then there's just a connection of them, and the next person is the gas station attendant that he happened to talk to after that. And then it's the person who lives across the hall from the gas station attendant. So it's almost sort of like a contact tracing for 
the forbidden thought. Right. And so the, the conclusion of the story, of course, obviously, is that at the end, the detective discovers uh, the alien presence somehow, learns about the Yithians, learns the story, and then the Yithian assures him that, you know, don't worry, you're perfectly safe. The world is no perfectly safe because I've eliminated everybody who has had the forbidden thought because the way you know that is that I can't say the name of Kothanur. Oh, damn it. Mm-hmm. And then the Yithian assassin slash serial killer has then passed the forbidden thought along to the detective. And that is your uh, horrific, ironic conclusion. Right. Is that the, the act of contamination is, you know, carried by the uh, seeming decontaminator. And that's the sort of the irony. And that ties sort of into the paradox at the heart of Kothanurin, which is that it's a thought that's forbidden, but in order to grasp it or deal with it, you have to think it, which is, of course, the paradox of the heart of the whole mythos. I like that. I like that story. I feel like, you know, we can bounce around and, and determine to what extent does it stay within the confines of the story and to what extent Franklin Paragraph's style, the great Ramsey Campbell metatext mythos horror, does it implicate the reader? Uh, I feel like we're we're missing out if we don't aim for the Ramsey Campbell heights on this, but, you know, a straight up sort of X-Files-y profiler story is also quite good. So there's the idea that you're reading a report and that now you've read the report as yes, the reader. Yes, and that the, you yeah. are the, the person who has put it together and the report has explained, well, the good thing is that anyone who puts this together is killed by these time-traveling aliens, so I guess there's no danger. And then, of course, you read the report, you know, which ends with the profiler killing himself, and then you're like, uh, oh, hold on. <laughs> and that's the moment is then when you realize... Now, the only the only niggle that I have about the story is that it makes the Ithians seem like good guys a little bit. That Oh, well, it's justified that they're killing all those humans. They were carriers of some made up thing that the Ithians believe in. And I feel like we would benefit if to some extent it was made apparent that the Ithians are basically a corrupted shell of typhoid Marys, even though the Ithian, you know, assassins don't necessarily know that they are. And maybe, I mean, you, you have elements of that in your story, but yeah. Right. So the, the profiler realizes that you must actually be spreading the thing that you're trying mm-hmm. to right. eliminate. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that gives the protagonist a smart thing to discover at the end. And so rather than the Yithian being the one that, who discovers it, that's the detective who puts it together. And, then, mm-hmm. and there's some parallel between their activities as a profiler and what the uh, Yithian is doing in order to find the victim. So it may right. be that, you know, that the... Yithian is imposing this contact tracing on them and that they, you know, except for the linguist, weren't actually contaminated at all. Yeah. Um, and that can be another, you know, hor- horrific irony that you then cannot escape. Mm-hmm. That the reason the Yithian is killing those people is that the Yithian has perceived Kothanurin and therefore can only perceive things in terms of their destruction. Exactly. Our final question, I think, is how on stage do we want Kothanurin to be? And this obviously is not consistent across... Lovecraft, sometimes the the god is kind of in the deep background. Other times, the god is cut in half by a boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, is it more fitting to have Kothanurin just as an idea that cannot be recognized? Or do we get to meet the owl trilobite virus? I feel like one of the many reasons that we kill a Durleth protagonist in the early going of the story is that we can have drawings of, you know, the owl trilobite virus that, you know, they have assembled from, you know, a million cultures and they've put them together again, classically Durleth. And then 
that's like, okay, that's our little nugget of what Cothenurin looks like, owl, trilobite, virus. And then you see elements of bits of that at the crime scene as the Yithian is killing people. And then the profiler figures out, oh, these elements are being left by the killer. They're not what the killer is hunting down. The killer is spreading it somehow. And then, of course, you know, depending on the format, if this is done in graphic novel form, you just have the the profiler draw it and say, oh, my God, now I'm a vector. Or you can just make that apparent within the within the prose that the profiler is a vector and that now you're a vector, you dummy, because you read this story. Right. Well, this makes me wonder, Ken, whether we've been spreading an idea that we weren't supposed to spread to all of our beloved listeners. That we ourselves are vectors of Cothenurin? So anyway, we better wrap up this series, and we'll do that next yeah. week by now having imagined that there is a, a, a seminal short story involving Cothenurin. We're going to end with the exercise of thinking out what a scenario in uh, Trail of Cthulhu would look like starring uh, Cothenurin. So we'll be back next week to wrap that up. But we've got more segments in this episode, so just uh, hold on to your seats, folks. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast from weird player character mistakes by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Tom Powell. Alex Johnston. Corey Walsh. David Mascari. And Yaj from Edinburgh. The rising action, the Freitag's triangle in the corner, the 36 doors we can go through all to lead into the same hut. Welcome us once more to the narrative hut. And in the narrative hut today, we are going to go through some of those doors and we're going to paint them and we're going to mark out boundaries between the rooms that we went into for some reason, Robin, uh, I guess. You'll tell us why we're doing this. But we're talking about boundaries between fantasy subgenres. And my take, Robin, uh, is that genre is all well and good, but it's only useful if you are trying to get tenure or if you are running a bookstore and need to know where to shelf something. Because most things that are any good cross so many genres that there's no real point in ascribing nitpickery to them. Right. So genres definitely are amorphous at the edges. But another reason that we uh, like genres is to be able to tell our players what we're <laughs> shooting for or to convince them to play. And sometimes our players will say, 
what genre is this? And they will want to make fine distinctions and will want to understand a setting by using uh, genre terminology. So uh, given that, uh, as creators, especially creators in fiction, it is absolutely often our objective to cross genres or to transcend genres. And I say this speaking as someone who's currently writing his second novel in a series of paranormal alternate universe political thrillers. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, of course, we cross genres all the time. But sometimes we talk about them for a reason. Sometimes, yes, we're just analyzing them. But other times we're selling them to people as is a bookseller or uh, us as GMs. And so this actually came out of a little discussion that's going on about Twitter. Someone was asking, is over the edge uh, magic realism? And I think I gave the wrong answer for why it isn't magic realism. But I figured that since this is something people talk about and ask that we should uh, discuss it. So the two major forks of the fantasy genre are the secondary world and the uh, start with Earth, let's call it. Right. And secondary world, uh, there's, again, there's subgenres of subgenres, but the two major forks are epic fantasy, i.e. Tolkien ripoffs and Tolkien, or sword and sorcery, i.e. Howard ripoffs and Howard. Uh, and of course, many of these things are not ripoffs at all, but like any genre, are exciting genres that are uh, following on expectations created by previous writers. And that's really what a genre is, is a basket of expectations that you are setting up for the reader and then hopefully playing with in an interesting way. Now, obviously, with that said, epic fantasies can and have been set on Earth and sword and sorcery. I mean, Howard set his stuff on Earth. It's set on Earth in the past. Good old Hyboria. It's even more earthy than Middle Earth, which is also Earth in the past while I'm picking nits and niggling. But there are epic fantasies that are absolutely, you know, set in historic Earth times. Likewise, sword and sorcery, many, many examples, uh, including many other sword and sorcery fantasies written by Robert E. Howard and set in Afghanistan instead of Ghulistan or wherever. Right. But that's generally the, I, I think we're now having a segment where we're quibbling over what secondary world means, which is <laughs> even more of a rabbit hole. Yeah. But I think where it starts to get a little confusing are stuff that involves our contemporary world, but with fantasy elements. So urban fantasy, I think is very much a marketing term because it, the mm -hmm. genre name came about uh, after, you know, contemporary book marketing. And so that's basically importing epic fantasy tropes into our modern world. And then you start to have the cross currents of genre. So there's horror adventure. If you're, you know, fighting Cthulhu in the, in the modern uh, day, but it's sort of a pulpy, to what extent is that horror? To what extent is that fantasy with horror imagery? And then you get into the, I think the thorniest thing where people are, I think, currently struggling with is the term magical realism has kind of been imported into, uh, out of literary fiction into the nerd environment, uh, where uh, I'm about to argue it sort of hits the shoals a bit. But uh, how would you separate magic realism from other streams of, uh, of fantasy? I mean, I would say that magic realism, by and large, takes the symbolic, magical, and numinous elements of life, or in the case of Garcia Marquez history, and turns them up, you know, brings them out. And this, you know, you can... As you, as we've said, genre elements exist on a continuum. So Henry James's golden bowl, you could argue, is the magic realist element in a Henry James novel because it is a very present symbol that somehow recapitulates the story. So at some point, 
magic realism just becomes good old fashioned literary symbolism. But a, you know, a fantastic event, whether that be a dream or a ghost or a vision or a time shift in the case of, again, you know, Columbus sailing into the harbor all of a sudden, that creates that sense of, of fantasy that turns it from strong symbolism to magic realism. And again, I, it, it's, I think they're almost always in the contemporary world. They, um, are generally, you know, symbolic emotionally in a way that maybe more conventional fantasy does not bother doing. But I would say it's that, it's that eruption and acceleration and enhancement of native symbolism into the actual fantastic that is the sort of, you know, put your finger on it moment for magic realism. And I would say that like film noir, in fact, even more so than film noir, you want to acknowledge historically where it came from. So just Mm -hmm. as many people say that there are film noir is from the 39 to uh, 1955 or something, and everything after that is neo-noir, that any definition of magical realism that, that does not have Marquez and Allende and other Central and South American writers at the heart of them has defined themselves away from the whole point of explaining what magic realism is. Right. That doesn't mean yeah. you have to be from that tradition, but that's they still have to be at the center of the definition. That's the tradition you're working in if you're doing self-conscious magical realism, in the same way that if you're making a neo-noir, you're in the tradition of Fritz Lang, whether you're doing a straight-up Fritz Lang homage or not, right? Right. And I would say that the element that separates magical realism from other fantastic things set in the present day is that magical realism is essentially comes out of surrealism and it doesn't explain, it doesn't have an expositional element where they go, and this is how magic works, or here's how the rules of these flower creatures go, that that brings you into the realm of more traditional science fiction and fantasy, that there isn't a speculative expositional element to it, but it is essentially treated as a literary conceit. Yeah. It's just, you know, there's, there's talking flowers and of course there are, and yes, and also let's describe this building here. And I think what people are groping for is another genre when they're talking about Twilight zone sort of things or even, you know, edging toward the kind of present-day weird that maybe the X-Files and Millennium and possibly Over the Edge and other things belong to uh, that are not maybe have horror elements but are not overtly horror all of the time, is they're looking for the fantastic. And the problem with using that term, which is well-established, used by Alberto Mangel, among others, is that... It's instead of a noun, it's a definite article and, and an adjective. And it's just awkward mm-hmm. to say. But, yeah. you know, these stories, which have existed for a long time, they predate magical realism. I think probably if you're trying to come up with uh, something that is happening in the present day, has, you know, a ghost in it, but isn't a, a horror story or, you know, has some other unreal or traditionally sort of gothic element that's handled uh, in a quasi-realistic way in our modern world, you're almost always dealing with a a story of the fantastic. And uh, despite the syntactical problems with that, that's the genre you're dealing with. Yeah, John Clute uses the term fantastica, but he uses it as more of a portmanteau, meaning fantasy and horror are almost indistinguishable uh, on this object level. So they're both fantastica. And, you know, is the ghost here to comfort you or scare you? Hardly matters. We've got a ghost. The ghost is Fantastica. And so I I feel like that's useful concept to have, but it doesn't really help the players know, is this game going to be then more like, you know, the the X-Files or is it going to be 
more like, you know, touched by an angel or something. And I think that this is where we have to ask questions of tone. And this is, you have terms like dark fantasy, which basically is sort of horror that isn't very scary. So Buffy maybe is dark fantasy. And you have, uh, is usually not very scary, obviously, hush, whatever. And then you have light fantasy, which is deliberately charming or funny or uh, enjoyable or amusant. So even though the actual activities in a standard Jack Vance story are kind of dark, the tone is very arch and above everything. Dunzany obviously is another sort of practitioner of light fantasy, even though he's also telling some pretty dark, grim stories if you strip down the, the fun language. So we have dark and light. And then we also have high and low fantasy, which are terms that people use. And usually those are used as shorthand for your epic fantasy and your sword and sorcery fantasy, because one of the aspects of sword and sorcery is that swords will beat sorcery if swung by Conan hard enough. And that implies a low fantastic world in which magic is not the trump card. The solution to everything is not super high powered and usually uh, turns you into an NPC rather than a uh, protagonist if you keep using it. Again, Fawford and the Grey Mouser sort of bounce around on the corners of that because the Mouser is both swordsman and somewhat sorcerer. So we have qualities, uh, you know, as as you say, it's a basket. It's It, it doesn't have boundaries. There, there's but sort I of an X like, and a Y axis. That there, right. There's one axis is its relationship to the imaginary mm-hmm. and uh, what rules it proposes or ignores. And the other is its tone. And I think you could plot most of these things uh, with using those two axes. Yeah. To, you know, continue, there's uh, Christian fantasy, your Narnias and whatnot. And you could expand that out to allegorical fantasy in which, you know, Philip Pullman, his golden compass is just as Narnia as Narnia. It's just atheist Narnia, but it's yeah, still allegory is the, arguably the oldest fantasy form. Exactly. And then, and so the, you know, the, the narrative part and, you know, Philip Pullman very cleverly, lays this uh, sort of unknown worlds techno fantasy explainer version underneath his allegory, but it's still just allegory. And that allegorical job is the job of it in the same way that the heightening of symbolism is the job, if you will, of, of magical realism. So allegorical fantasy, it's again, that's the fantasy of what the, uh, of the job of the, of the work. It's not, necessarily a quality you could have allegorical high low sword and sorcery urban fantasy whatever it is as long as you are telling a particularly uh on point moral story then you're telling an allegory whether you like it or not well if there's one thing that i've learned from centuries of allegory it's don't let your segments on genre go too long uh, <laughs> so on that note uh, having uh, put up uh, an x and a y axis we're going to back slowly away from the cork board and see what waits on the other side of this exciting commercial Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detwiller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. 
The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green, Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more to enter the hut so ill-defined, so sensitive, so paranoid, yet so centering us in the middle of the universe that it doesn't even have a hut. It just has a corner. It has the conspiracy corner. And this time around, we enter it at the behest of beloved Patreon backer Daniel Gill, who says, a Chinese historical linguistic society has claimed not only that all European languages are actually dialects of Chinese, but further, that all recorded European history prior to 1500 is entirely fabricated. Also, Samuel Johnson wrote all of Shakespeare's plays. So, Ken, we've uh, on numerous occasions covered Eurocentric historical wackadoo revisionism, so uh, we're going to enter the refreshing waters of Sinocentric wackadoo historical revisionism. Uh, what did you uncover about the World Civilization Research Association? They are in a weird space. On the one hand, they are clearly a scamming bunch of UFO nuts. On the other hand, they get to go to official government conferences, which in China means someone likes what you do and thinks it's important that everyone hear about it. So, Or is getting a, a, a taste, getting their beaks wet. Yeah, it, probably. It's just, you know, naked nationalism, because that's what it serves, obviously. But it's older than even our boy Xi Jinping. Uh, according to their own statements, it goes back 20 years of research. The primary researchers in it are a guy named Du Gangjian who is a law professor, apparently a fairly notable one by day, but his real, his real love, Robin, is making up ethnology. So, for example, he argues that not only did Indo-Europeans all come from Hunan, so did the American Indians. Everything came from Hunan, and the Hunanese dialect is, in fact, the version of Chinese that spawned all the languages of Europe. And, uh, his buddy, his backup, the gray mouser to his fofford, is a guy named Li Guofang. And the good thing is, since Chinese is English, I don't have to care how I pronounce these things. Um, he is a people's professor, uh, which is different from a real professor. We need to start using that term. As far as I'm concerned, that's the real I think you and I are people's professors. We are Ken. people's professors. We are, Robin. So, people's professor Li Guofang runs a teach-yourself-English mill called uh, Sinology English or something. And he is the guy who says, learning English is easy. It's just learning Chinese, but saying it differently. So <laughs> go ahead, teach yourself. I'll just so a falling check. leaf is yellow and its color is yellow in English. Look at that. And the core of something is the, is the hurray. And look at that. The core of something in English is the heart. It's just that simple. Just learn English by saying Chinese loud and with a dumb accent, which in fairness is how centuries of Britishers learned Chinese. So I feel like there's a, there's a beautiful overlap here somewhere. 
Um, among the things that the World Civilization Research Association teaches, in addition to the fact that Europe was a land of howling barbarians until one assumes Zheng He is the guy who comes and civilizes them, but maybe it was, you know, some uh, Ming somewhere that, that, that did it. And then they built up their pretend Chinese civilization, just like uh, Korea or Japan or Vietnam, except that theirs was younger and stupider than those old and beautiful civilizations. And that's why they made up a bunch of dumb stories and thought that they were real. So another thing that uh, they believe is that the universe originated in China. The flame emperor Yan Di, who reigned in 2500 BC, except that he didn't exist, flew away from Earth on a spaceship and conquered the entire universe. And today's Galactic Federation and Imperial League are all Chinese. So the aliens are Chinese, and that's why they're here. They're here to see what's going on in the old home country. They're they're coming back for a, a you know Chinese New Year or something. That's what the aliens are doing. So the uh, World Civilization Research Association is really a bucket where I assume anyone who's a buddy of Li Guofang or Du Ganjian comes by and says, I have a dumb theory, and they say, put it in the bucket. We're going to put it into the into the presentation that we will now, for some reason, get to give at a real academic conference. I want to say that the Samuel Johnson thing is just misreading for Ben Johnson, but on the other hand, it's such an epic troll that <laughs> I kind of hope that uh, Du Ganjian did that on purpose, that that was him just messing with people. But it might have been, you know, there's uh, another character who I wasn't able to find any real footprints for. His name is something like Zhu Gajian or something. Um, he's another guy that's in it, but he doesn't have any publications. He just shows up and gives long, meretricious interviews to the press, which is how this got out. It, I think uh, the sort of ground zero for it after the conference was that a paper in Taiwan wrote it up on the, can you believe these communist goofballs? And then it got picked up by Vice and everything. Uh, the big conference happened in 2019. So it's a little bit of yesterday's news. But on the other hand, I'm sure they don't stop believing it. Not only would that. Well, you know, history anger... stopped at 2019 and, and has exactly. been on pause ever since. It, it, it has. So the, you know, the, the, the WCRA, if I may call them that, um, or in Chinese, WCRA, uh, they seem on the one hand like hapless goofs, but on the other hand, you know, you could argue that they are a weaponized, literally linguistic virus that the, you know, uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party is setting them up to uh, send mimetic warfare out to America's sensation mongers and idiots. Do I repeat myself? Who can say? And so that by, you know, propagating this specific combination of words, it sort of creates in all of us a uh, winter soldier effect and that these are the, the, the mimetic key codes that are awakening people up. And so be glad I didn't read off all of the parallels that uh, they gave in their interview uh, to the Asia times. Right. Right. And she's trying to seems to be going back to retro authoritarianism. It's not mm -hmm. doing much with postmodern authoritarianism of making you uh, question all reality by flooding the zone with uh, nuttiness, the way that you uh, see in uh, Putin's Russia. But should he decide to do this, you know, maybe this is just, you know, a backup plan, right? If you're figuring, well, I might need to do postmodern authoritarianism and let everything go uh, kooky and, and crazy. Uh, that doesn't seem like his style. He's, uh, right. you know, looking at all the weirdo buildings that have been constructed and going, these are too weird looking. Let's make things normal again. But, uh, you know, maybe, you know, it's a, a rival to Xi who's uh, in our imaginary political thr thriller version of this is, you know, setting up the alternate, you know, postmodern successor to, to Xi and challenging with a bit of a reality storm and, you know, just sort of, you know, 
ducking a little bit of toe in the water. Of, well, in, uh, in the same way that uh, Himmler purged all the astrologers and that Lenin purged Gleb Boki, maybe we're seeing, as you say, that Xi is doing the let it out, shut it down approach. And so I think that the Chinese, and, and this is legitimate, and not legitimate, I think it's true, that the Chinese government is doing a flood the zone on all fronts. So they are putting Xi Jinping thought not just into standard areas of politics, economics, international relations, whatever else, but also into crazitude. And I feel like if I read Chinese and was reading Chinese UFO stuff, it would be just as full of Xi Jinping thought as the Chinese movie industry is now. And so, you know, I feel like it's not a deliberate, we're going to make everything so crazy people will turn to us in relief, but it's a literally everyone, no matter what, kind of thing you think about in your free time need to be thinking Xi Jinping thought. And I feel like that is, again, very similar to Mao. And Mao was certainly a guy who let crazy stuff happen and then said, oh, purge the crazy stuff. It's too dangerous. So, you know, you could you could argue that either this is, a, you know, an ambitious weirdo rising in the ranks, a la your um, uh, Rudolf Hess, or it could just be, you know, part of the whole spectrum. And the only reason that we care about this is that our podcast is specifically tuned to uh, weirdness and elliptony in this way. And that, you know, other podcasts who talk about, you know, I don't know, um, geology are saying it's wild that there's this Xi Jinping thought version of geology that's happening now. <laughs> right. Because, of course, if you're a pre-existing crackpot, you're going to add uh, pro-Xi uh, content to it in order to get invited to uh, academic conferences. That's... That's just yeah, how you precisely. get free food and drink, right? And and one of the Taiwanese articles about this did say it's interesting that a lot of these words that they use in their in their examples are words that you know are core phrases in Xi Jinping thought. Like core, for example, shows up all the time, and so it may very much be that how do we get our crazy thing onto the front pages? Let's add some Xi Jinping thought to it, and maybe that's what it comes from. Right. Push and pull. Um, and the, the other thing we're seeing around the world is that crackpots are being uh, politically motivated and streamed into, not necessarily the mainstream, but made uh, more politically powerful. So that uh, you know it could go in the other direction. Someone would be going, "Wow, we could. It would be good to have a whole bunch of crackpots to use for very expendable reasons. So let's uh, mm -hmm. let's find them and develop them and and cultivate them. And so that is." One way that this conspiracy could uh, come across your player characters. And of course, the other one is, you know, you could do a weirdo modern conspiracy game when it turns out the Galaxy Federation is real and uh, all of our notions about history are, are, are false and that this is absolutely true. And that's the, the uh, head spinning development that you uh, encounter partway through. The, the aliens do, in fact, serve the mighty flame emperor Yandi. And that would be fun. I mean, that in the spirit of aliens can be from anywhere. I don't see why aliens can't be from imaginary future past China. I mean, that makes perfect sense. Exactly. Right? Just makes just as much sense to have the aliens uh, all speaking English for some reason to have them all speaking Mandarin or Hunanese, which is the same thing as English. We now know. Exactly. Right. It's, it's, it's exactly <laughs> the same thing. What was I thinking about? Uh, well, before I make other elementary mistakes about uh, history and language, I'd better close up this podcast for another week. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Cast award against Johnsonian interlopers by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Balance the magic of giving with the realism of keeping this podcast alive by joining such backers as... Darren Hennessy. Matt Farr. Ole Toivonen. Tony Kemp. And Fred Kim. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Ingest the Eldritch Cappuccino foam with our latest design. If it's coffee, I'll drink it. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.